I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. The civil rights era of the 50s and 60s saw the rise of the Black Power movement. Among the activists who advocated for this cause was a group of Black artists from Chicago who called themselves Africobra. The group's mission to elevate and empower Black communities defined and shaped the aesthetics of Black art for decades. Roxbury artist Napoleon Jones Henderson was a key member of Africobra. His distinctive woven tapestries and vibrant paintings are on display throughout Boston and now at Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art in a comprehensive exhibition, I Am As I Am a Man. Joining me now, Napoleon Jones Henderson, a Roxbury-based artist, educator, and mentor who creates works on pan-Africanism and racial justice. Welcome, Napoleon. Glad to be here, Kelly. I'm glad to have you as well. Also with me, Jeffrey Dubois. He's the assistant curator and publications manager for the Institute of Contemporary Art, Boston. He organized the exhibit, I Am As I Am a Man. Thank you for joining us, Jeff. Hi, Kelly. Thanks. Happy to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have both of you. Napoleon, I'm starting with you. All pretenses aside, for full disclosure, I've known you for thousands and thousands of years. Um, I have long admired your work, and I am delighted by this exhibition. I should say also that I own a piece of your work. You probably don't even remember. (laughs) Well, you're right about that. It's a 1993 print called Weezin' and Wailin'. I have number 12 out of 60 hanging on my wall as we speak. That is good to know. Good to know. (laughs) Um, Would that I could afford to have some of the other big public arts pieces you have around town. Uh, So many of us have followed your journey, as I said, for a long time. And now this. But let's start at the beginning, because a lot of people don't know you, surprisingly. And I want them to understand what the Chicago-based Black arts movement known as Afrocobra was and uh, how it influenced your journey to where you are today. So first, let everybody know what Afrocobra stands for. Well, Afrocobra started in Chicago in 1968, but it has been instrumental in terms of my aesthetic approach to what I do as an image maker. Uh, and one most important thing about Afrocobra, which is the, it stands for the African Commune of Bad Relevant Artists. And for us, most significantly, the key word in that name is relevant. And it's about creating works that uh, elevate the aesthetics of the the African community uh, worldwide, but in specific from the uh, Western Hemisphere, the U.S. base. And it is a, a movement that basically started out of our, our being artists speaking and collaborating with each other throughout Chicago and seeking to find a role in which the African-American visual artists could participate in the elements of the civil rights movement, so to speak. Mm. And we were not marching per se, some of us physically, but it was what we wanted to have our work used as an instrument, if you will, a revolutionary instrument. That is, the visual images had to speak and elevate the issues and concerns of the African humanity that the civil rights movement surely was about elevating. 
And it also had to be grounded in the other aspects of the African-American culture, which is the spiritual and social realm. And so the works that Africobra created were based on uh, primarily first and foremost themes. Our first theme was family. And then we had a, a, a theme that was unite or unity. And so we saw ourselves as the visual component of the civil rights movement, so to speak. And in that sense, we were collaborating with and joining with many other visual artists throughout the African diaspora. And so we developed a set of visual aesthetics and a philosophical base, which underpinned our work from 1968 to today. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I want to go back because you say that in COBRA, the African commune of bad, relevant artists, relevant is the most important thing to you all. For a lot of people just hearing the name now, bad might <laughs> attract some attention. So I need for you to explain that in the lexicon of the time uh, when you were founded, what bad meant. <laughs> well, it, I, I tell people many times when they ask me about that, I say, the African commune of bad, relevant artists, and that's bad before the Jackson Five, okay? <laughs> uh, bad is a manner of uh, uh, congratulatory or, or encouragement within the context of uh, stating that something that one is doing has great relevance and great importance and it has significance. It's not a negative, it's a positive. And it's a flip on the, 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 the narrative about things being in the negative and positive, bad was always, and you take James Brown and you take any of the other singers of that time, you know, I'm bad and I know it. And bad is a statement of positivity, a statement of uh, elevation, a statement of, if you will, social justice in a way of speaking, is that someone was dressed in a certain kind of way, you say, yeah, he, he really dressed very bad. You mm -hmm. did, I can see that. And bad meant a statement of beauty, ultimately. And the shorthand way of it, bad meant good. <laughs> bad meant good. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jeffrey DeBlois, you curated this exhibit, I Am As I Am a Man. Um, tell me how first how you came to know Napoleon's work. As I said, I've known his work a long, long time. But how did you come to know it? Sure. So I think it was in 2015, I saw an exhibition in Chicago at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago called The Freedom Principle. And I would say that, you know, I, I knew about Africobra before that exhibition, but that is really the moment where, you know, their sort of importance, their historical importance, their social and cultural importance came to be in the front of my mind. And then some years later, I met Napoleon Jones Henderson at the Boston Art Book Fair and was just kind of flabbergasted, you know, with myself to learn that one of Africobra's key longstanding members had been here in Boston since 1974. And so, you know, I was frustrated with myself for not knowing that, but I think, you know, pretty quickly sprung to action and Napoleon and I formed you know, a relationship and a friendship that led to studio visits, you know, one after the other to learn more about his work, uh, the greater context for his work within Africobra, and then sort of over a matter of months, the idea for the exhibition germinated out of those conversations that we had in thinking about a way to highlight his work here in Boston, but for an international audience. 
Um, put in context from your art expertise perspective for people who are trying to place, well, how important was this movement and is this movement, as Napoleon has informed us, it, it continues. How important was Afrocobra in the context of, of thinking about uh, various periods of time where in, in certain kinds of art came to the fore? I think the answer to that is a short one, and it's incredibly important. And you see there's a number of major exhibitions uh, in which their work has been included in recent memory in the last five, six years. One of them is called Soul of a Nation that started at the Tate in London and traveled around the U.S. That included lots of work by Afrikobra artists. Uh, another one that is the, the one that I mentioned earlier, The Freedom Principle, and another one called We Wanted a Revolution, which was an exhibition of uh, radical Black women artists that originated at the Brooklyn Museum, but came to the ICA. And so at the museum where I work, there was a great context for Napoleon's work already because we had recently shown the really path-breaking work by other Afrikobra artists like Jay Jarrell and Barbara Jones Hogu, uh, someone who Napoleon was really close with, shared a studio with, collaborated with, and someone whose work he frequently translated into his weavings. And so, you know, I think it's only in these last couple of years that we're starting to have a greater purchase on the historical importance of Afrocobra. And I think its greatest legacy is seen in the works that are being made by younger generations of artists today for whom they are, you know, a, a really key influence. And so I think there has been this kind of return to looking at the historical legacy of Afrocobra through the prism or the lens of looking at the artists that are working today. All right, Napoleon, let's talk about uh, the work itself. You yourself talked about the certain kinds of aesthetic that the group adopted. So talk about that. It's a lot of color, for one thing. And Jeffrey has complimented that by making the rooms, the three rooms where the exhibition is hung, full of color. But first, let's talk about the, the visual, the aesthetic that you say is so important to the signature of Afrocobra. Okay, that aesthetic starts with your observation of the walls. First and foremost, our first national exhibition we had in 1970 at the Studio Museum in Harlem, that was the manner in which the entire museum was, was painted. Every wall was a particular color, and one of those colors, all of those colors, we call Kool-Aid colors in Afrikobra. Kool-Aid color is one of the aspects of the aesthetic principles of Afrikobra, and shine is a particular element of which I find I exhibit quite well in my tapestries in the sense that the use of metallic yarns, real metal foil wrapped around threads that allowed for me to be able to create that element of shine, which shine in Afrikobra's context is an element of beauty that we can see from the surface of the bodies of African people. That if you take a dark surface and you place oil or water on it, you can get the reflective aspects of what we call shine. So Afrikobra's use of colors, the Kool-Aid colors, the very bright, vivid colors, reflect a multitude of hues of color within the Black skin. But by looking at the manner in which we dress and adorn ourselves as an African people, the reflective, shiny objects and shiny elements of adornment, is always present. And so, you know, those are just the elements. We took the opportunity to look inward mm -hmm. into the African community. And we call ourselves image makers, not artists. Mm. And an image maker is something quite different than an artist in our philosophy. An image maker is the aspect of an individual creating positive 
images that reflect the aesthetics of the culture of the people, the aspect of creating messages, visual messages and words were very much a part of Afro-Cobra's aesthetic philosophy. For example, as we said in one of our pieces, Nation Time, the Black family, and one of the pieces at the ICA, Black Men Rise. You also have TCB on one of them. Right, TCB. Mm-hmm. That was the first one, which is the importance of language. And mm-hmm. that's the colloquial language, and that's the hip language, and the language of the street, and the language of the movement, taking care of business. That's what TCB represents. That particular piece is based on a, uh, a silk screen print by Barbara Jones, which the overarching element of it is the huge Afro, the, the natural hairstyle, which consumes almost two-thirds of the compositional space. Right. And within that compositional space, that word taking care of business reflects the attitude of the African community within the context of the 60s and 70s, that manner of wearing one's hair in an exploded Afro was taking care of the business of making positive statements about our own sense of self, our sense of beauty, our sense of aesthetics. And it was a forward statement which has returned at this particular point in time. We see a lot of young brothers and sisters walking about with an Afro. Full circle. Let me go over to Jeffrey again. Jeffrey, you curated this exhibit, The Three Rooms, but with so much to choose from, which I know is all always the situation for a curator. How did you decide which pieces would really give visitors a sense of the breadth of his work? Yeah, it's true. There was certainly, you know, after Napoleon had been diligently working for for 50 years, an embarrassment of riches when it came time to choose which works we wanted to include in the show. We came up with the structure, which is a loosely chronological one. And then, you know, I tried to really think about what works would anchor each of the spaces, which works on the one hand had been seen by people before, like TCB, which has come up a little bit, you know, I think has been in a couple of exhibitions, has moved around. It's a work that people associate with Napoleon. But then he had so much work that folks haven't seen for so long. But really, it came down to thinking about this chronological structure, thinking about which works were most demonstrative in some ways of the different approaches that he takes, you know, not just his weavings, but also prints that he makes, his enamel on copper mosaic works, large and small scale tapestries. So so really in a kind of condensed survey of 50 years worth of work to just display the breadth and singularity of his vision was what I aimed for. And, you know, I tell people in some senses, the work is is so amazing and there's so much of it. I feel like the exhibition kind of made itself uh, and I was a kind of medium to a certain extent, but it was really easy to make the decisions about which works I was drawn to because Napoleon and I share a quality in common, which is a great love of music. I gravitated to a lot of works that have a sense of musicality, works that reflect on lyrics by Stevie Wonder or Duke Ellington's Sacred Concerts or Thelonious monk or different individuals that he highlights in his work. So those were some of the ideas that I think structured how I made the decisions for which works to include, and of course, collaboratively with Napoleon. So the last room is weaving with cowrie shells and beads and enamel. It's really quite beautiful. It has a kind of 
spiritual overlay to it. And Napoleon, you engaged another artist to actually do some of this music and spoken word to accompany this. They have something to say. I want to play a clip from Priscilla G. Zor as a glow's Black Church Burning featured in the exhibition. wonderful to be in that room and have this as part of it and look at your works in the context of it. I mean, it really pulls together that whole commune, communal feeling that has always been Afro-Cobra Napoleon. Absolutely. Gizor is a is an extraordinarily gifted young poet, music, creative person, performance artist. That particular exhibition room entitled requiem for our ancestors, which is why the elements that you mentioned in the beginning about the cowrie shells and the various other elements that are part of those uh, sculptural forms that are in there are about the aspect of creating an environment and a space in which one can become attached to or relate to the spirits of those who have passed on. And that's a requiem, again, is a musical form, more often than not, and in the context in which I'm using it, a visual musical form that addresses the spirits of our ancestors. And so with the sound and the visual and the three-dimensional aspect of what is exhibited by those works in that space, it is my intent to create an environment that allows for one to commune with the spirits of one's ancestors. And those structures actually are based on, as, as, as Jeffrey mentioned a little earlier, uh, the local and traditional dwellings, shacks and cabins of the rural Black South in the sense that they are physically, visually a, a cabin, but there are no doors or windows. And there are no doors and windows because those are not structures for the, for the domicile of the living, but for the spirits of the deceased. And I'm speaking about the spirits of the deceased individuals whose lives were taken in the transatlantic trade, whose lives were lost throughout lynchings and the, the toils and the degradation of enslavement throughout the Western Hemisphere, and were not able to be properly honored, those spirits of those individuals, by their relatives or their community in their passing. And so mm -hmm. these structures allow them to have a place to come and stop wandering and for us to be able to properly, you know, address them and their spiritual realm so that everyone is, is happy or feeling comfortable about that passing of the individual whose spirits are now located someplace. You have continued to say your, your artwork is a life mission to uplift Black communities. Do you feel you've achieved that? Uh, yes, I feel I have achieved it and am still achieving it because it's never uh, a completion until I'm no longer able to do any work. 
And as I say, my, my pursuit is to, to create an aesthetic excellence and a spiritual uplift of people through the works that I create. And I hope that that element of uplift is always present in the works. Jeffrey, I'd be remiss if not pointing out that here's Napoleon. He's been here all this time. He's been working his his work and the work of the group that he's a part of, well-known around the world. And yet this exhibition is his first in, in a gallery, major gallery in town. It's like he's been hidden in plain sight. Um, what do you think about that? For me, it was an oversight, right? And that was one of the influences that really was a driver for me in, you know, trying to make this exhibition. It, it was that this is something that was a long time coming. Um, this is a way in which people needed to see the breadth of his work in one of Boston's major museums because, you know, his impact has been felt so far beyond the walls of the museum as well as an educator, as a mentor to younger generations of artists. And so many people in the community know this, but I think it just gives another context for seeing Napoleon's work. And for me is in service of his legacy and, and what you all are talking about in terms of his life's mission. To me, this just feels like one stop and uh, one opportunity to think about the impact of that legacy to show his work to younger generations of artists and to really highlight the impact of his work to an international audience. That's great. One last question, Napoleon. I hear you've been visiting your own exhibit anonymously just to hear what folks are saying. What, what, what have you most enjoyed some hearing someone say? Uh well, I guess I would say that people are just sort of blown away, to use that phrase, by the uh, vibrancy, uh, the vibratory aspect of the color of the walls in the galleries, as well as the works and how they all work as a overarching unit, that they don't see the work as being on the wall and the wall being something that's supporting the work. They see the entire space, all three of the galleries, as a visual work that uh, I will say my conductor, Jeffrey, and I, the visual musician, mm-hmm have created for all of them to come and uh, enjoy and participate and be elevated. So you like what you're hearing? Oh, yeah, I'm liking what I hear. (laughs) Okay. You know. (laughs) Well, I thank both of you for joining me. And thank you and enjoy the Kool-Aid day. <laughs> Thanks, Kelly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Napoleon Jones Henderson is a Roxbury-based artist, educator, and mentor who creates works on Pan-Africanism and racial justice. Jeffrey Dubois is the assistant curator and publications manager for the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston. He organized Napoleon's exhibit, I Am As I Am a Man. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubele with help from our former intern, Vanessa Handy, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.